I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by Kino Skincare. You'll hear promos for two podcasts during this episode. The first is called True Crime Deadline, which is hosted by seasoned true crime reporter Matt Johnson. It's a great show for people looking for in-depth coverage of and breaking news on major crime cases. The other promo is for Azka's Mystery Podcast, hosted by a very special little girl named Azka Sharif. Azka was referred to Make-A-Wish Foundation due to a medical condition. Her desire was to make her very own podcast, and that's exactly what she did. And did I mention that Asuka is only five years old? Make sure to hit the subscribe button for True Crime Deadline and Asuka's Mystery Podcast. That's spelled A-Z-K-A. We'll get into the episode in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to my newest Patreon supporters, Victoria and Brenda. Thank you so much for your support, ladies. It's very much appreciated. The case featured in this episode was suggested by listener of the show, Stacy. Thank you, Stacy, for bringing this case to my attention. A quick warning, this case involves a young child and disturbing details surrounding her murder, so please use discretion before listening. This case brings us to the picturesque beach community of San Diego, California. It was February of 2002 when a seven-year-old girl went missing, stolen from her own bedroom in the middle of the night. When all was said and done, Police realized the perpetrator may have actually gone undetected 
inside the young girl's home while her parents were there. Join me as I walk you through the tragic case of Danielle Van Dam. San Diego, California sits on the Pacific Ocean approximately 120 miles south of Los Angeles and about 15 miles north of the U.S.-Mexican border. The Farmer's Almanac lists San Diego as having one of the 10 best climates in the world. The city is absolutely beautiful. San Diego is home to the world's largest naval fleets, as well as a Marine Corps recruit boot camp. The city has a world-famous zoo and is home to the somewhat controversial aquatic attraction, SeaWorld. Some notable people have lived in San Diego, including musician Jewel Kilcher, who was discovered there in her late teens while working in a coffee shop. Other notable people from San Diego include musician Frank Zappa, actors Ted Danson and Dennis Hopper, TV host Regis Philibin, Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. San Diego was named by Forbes magazine as one of the safest cities in the country. One of San Diego's affluent, safe neighborhoods is the setting for our story. The community of Sabre Springs is in the northeastern part of San Diego. The median home value in Sabre Springs is just over 551000 double the median home value in the United States. The high schools that serve Sabre Springs are Mount Carmel High School, where the 1999 movie Bring It On was filmed, and Rancho Bernardo High School, which Tom DeLonge and Scott Rayner from the band Blink-182 attended. As one would imagine, the crime rate in Sabre Springs is low, and it might have stayed that way if not for what happened one Friday night in February of 2002. That Friday night, over 17 years later, still reminds residents that even in picturesque communities, terrible tragedies can and do happen. Back in 2002, 
one family in Sabre Springs appeared to be living an idyllic life. In early 1998, Damon Van Dam, age 32, and his wife Brenda, age 35, had moved from Dallas, Texas to a home on Mountain Pass Road in Sabre Springs. At the time of the move, the Van Dams had been married for nine years and had three children together. Derek, who was five, Danielle, who was three years old, and Dylan, who was one-year-old. Damon was a software engineer working for a company that contracted with tech giant Qualcomm. Brenda was a stay-at-home mom. At the beginning of February 2002, the Van Dam children, now ages 9, 7, and 5, were excited about an upcoming trip to Italy the following weekend on February 9th. Danielle was a Brownie Girl Scout and had recently begun taking piano lessons. On Tuesday, January 29th, Brenda and Danielle had gone around the neighborhood selling Girl Scout cookies. Dylan tagged along with them. During their stops, they went to the home of a man who lived two houses down from them. Brenda remembered that they had sold cookies to him the year prior. They didn't really know him. The man was older than Brenda and Damon. He was divorced and had children, but they lived with their mother and they were college-aged. When they told the man why they were there, he decided to buy a box of Thin Mints and invited the family inside. Brenda was anxious to see his kitchen, as she remembered when they came the year before, the man was having it remodeled and she wanted to see what it looked like. Danielle and Dylan went out the sliding glass door to look at the pool, while Brenda and the man, whose name was David Westerfield, chatted about his new kitchen. Westerfield talked with Brenda about seeing her the Friday before at Dad's Cafe and Steakhouse, which everyone just called Dad's. Dad's was located in Poway, just a few miles from Sabre Springs. Brenda had been at the bar with her two girlfriends, Denise and Barbara. Westerfield had come over and introduced himself to the women and bought them a round of drinks. Brenda told Westerfield she might be going again this Friday. Her husband was taking their two sons out of town on a snowboarding trip, and as long as she could find a babysitter for Danielle. She was planning on being at Dad's with the same friends again. Westerfield said he would be interested in being introduced to her friend, Barbara. He also gave Brenda his business card and told her that he liked to host adult parties. Brenda gave him their phone number, and then she left the house with Danielle and Dylan. By the time Friday came, Damon had to cancel the snowboarding trip with the boys. He planned to stay home with the children while Brenda went out with her girlfriends. Denise Kamal and Barbara Easton arrived around 8 p.m., and the three women went into the garage to smoke some weed. The door from the home leading into the garage could be locked from inside the garage. The door was locked to prevent the kids from coming into the garage while the adults were smoking. While the three women were smoking, one of them opened a different door leading to the outside of the garage. Brenda couldn't remember if anyone had shut the door afterward, although Denise said she closed the door but didn't lock it. Around 8.30 p.m., Brenda, Barbara, and Denise headed to Dad's. When they arrived, the ladies saw Brenda's neighbor, David Westerfield, who was there with two of his friends. Brenda pointed Westerfield out to her friend Barbara, who went over and introduced herself to him. Then he bought the three women a round of drinks, as he had done the previous Friday. Around 9 p.m., two male friends, Rich Brady and Keith Stone, arrived at Dad's and joined the three women. 
The five of them played pool for a while. Westerfield's two friends eventually joined the group, while Westerfield just watched them play and didn't participate. Around 10.30 p.m., the five friends went out to Brenda's SUV to smoke more weed, while Westerfield and his friends stayed inside. After smoking, they went back into Dad's and began to dance. Back at the Van Damme house, Damon put the kids to bed around 10 p.m. Afterward, he went back downstairs to watch TV for a short while, and then he went back upstairs to bed. He took the family dog, a Weimreiner puppy named Layla, with him so she didn't bark when Brenda and her friends came home. The five friends stayed at Dad's until closing time at 2 a.m., and then decided to go back to Brenda's house. Brenda didn't know if Westerfield was still at Dad's when they left. One of Westerfield's friends said that he left the bar but came back around 12.30 a.m. According to this friend, Westerfield was gone when he returned to the bar. When Brenda and her friends arrived back at the Van Damme house, Brenda noticed one of the home's alarm lights flashing. This meant that either a window or a door was open. They noticed that the garage door leading to the yard, the one that had been open before the women went to Dad's, was standing wide open. They shut the door, and the five of them went inside the house. Barbara, not Brenda, went upstairs to the room where Damon was asleep. She crawled into bed with him and cuddled him for a while. Brenda came upstairs a little while later and told them to come downstairs with the rest of them, who were having something to eat. Damon and Barbara came downstairs and joined their friends. Brenda said she noticed that the doors to the children's bedrooms were open, so she shut them to make sure they didn't wake up from the noise downstairs. After they ate, the guests left the house around 2.30 in the morning. Damon and Brenda locked up the house. Damon put Layla, the family's dog, in Derek's room, and then he and Brenda went to bed. Sometime between 3 and 3.30 in the morning, Damon woke up to go to the bathroom. When he got up, he noticed the alarm light flashing in the bedroom. He went downstairs and he could feel a cold draft coming into the house. He saw the sliding glass door to the backyard was open. He closed it and made sure that all the other doors were closed. He checked the alarm panel to make sure nothing else was open. Then he went back to bed. He didn't think at the time to check on the children again. The next morning, Brenda got up first and went downstairs to make breakfast. She was also waiting for two neighborhood children to come over for her to watch that day. The two children came to the house around 9.30 a.m. Damon, Dylan, and Derek were already downstairs eating breakfast. Danielle, who liked to sleep late, was the only one who was not up yet. So Brenda went upstairs to wake her. When she opened the door to her daughter's room, the room was empty. Brenda immediately called 911 to report Danielle missing. The call was made at 9.39 a.m. Brenda then began phoning some of her neighbors to ask if they had seen Danielle. Then, she and Damon started gathering people to help search for their daughter. Police arrived to talk to the Van Dams to get any information they could, while friends and neighbors began searching. The family printed out missing persons posters, using Danielle's passport photo, 
which had recently been taken for their upcoming trip to Italy. Police had done an initial search of the nearby canyons and the neighborhoods on Saturday, but hadn't found anything. By Sunday, February 3rd, they had blocked off Mountain Pass Drive, and officers and detectives were canvassing the neighborhood to talk to anyone who might have seen Danielle. Detective Johnny Keene and his partner, Detective Mara McKenna's Parga, who went by Mo, were on the scene canvassing the neighborhood. One of the many doors on which they knocked that day was that of a neighbor who lived just two doors down from the Van Dams. No one answered the door when police knocked. That neighbor seemed to be the only person who was not home that Sunday. Mo and Keene were called to help in Danielle's case as they had worked on a lot of missing person and kidnapping cases. Both detectives began to believe that this was a kidnapping and not just a missing child. After being on the force for 17 years, Mo knew that even when little children wander off or get upset and run away, they come back after a few hours when they're scared or hungry. Mo, however, didn't believe that Danielle was ever coming home. As they stood in front of the only house where no one answered, they found out from other neighbors that the man who lived there was an engineer who works at home and lives by himself. He was described as quiet and was called Desert Dave by some of the neighbors because he liked to camp in the desert. Detective Moe looked at his well-kept house and manicured lawn. Everything was exactly in place and immaculate, just like a picture. Everything except for the hose. She noticed that among the picture-perfect house and yard, with everything just as it was supposed to be, an ordinary garden hose was unraveled and lying on the curb. She thought this looked odd. Here is someone whose grass is nicer than most golf courses. His bushes are trimmed perfectly. Why would he leave a garden hose lying across his lawn, where it would make the beautiful green grass beneath it turn yellow? Someone that meticulous, Mo thought, would only do that if they were in a hurry. Mo was known among other officers for getting thoughts like these at times. Not hunches, more like hyper-aware observations. After observing the man's home and yard, and processing everything she saw, somehow, Mo knew this was the guy who took Danielle. Mo hadn't met him yet, didn't even know what he looked like but she was sure he was the kidnapper. Mo walked over to the command post set up near the Van Dam's house, where the higher-ups were gathered. She pointed to the garden hose and told them why she believed this was the man for whom they were looking. She also let them know that neighbors told her the man left on Saturday morning and wasn't back yet. Curious timing, they thought. As Mo continued to talk, the higher-ups began to listen more intently. Eventually, Moe's theory trumped anything they had come up with. The lead investigator, Lieutenant Jim Collins, told her to get to work following her theory. Moe and Detective Keene wasted no time. They got to work immediately. The two of them sat on Westerfield's house until 3 a.m. on Monday, waiting for him to return. Finally, they decided to get some rest and come back later in the morning. Not wanting to leave the house unattended, other detectives took over while Moe and Keene rested. As they dug deeper into their primary suspect, they learned that his name was David Allen Westerfield. They found out that he was born on February 25th of 1952 in National City, California. 
Westerfield had two children from his second marriage. He had lived in California from birth until the age of five, then moved to Maine with his parents, David Horatio Westerfield and Laura Westerfield, as well as his younger sister, Tanya, and younger brother, Earl. The family moved back to California when Westerfield was 16 years old. He attended high school in San Diego, graduating from Madison High School in 1970. He met his first wife, Deborah Kyle, in high school. They married in 1973. After six years of marriage, they divorced in 1979. Westerfield was remarried less than a year later to Jackie Neal. They had two children, a boy named David Neal Westerfield, who goes by Neal, and a girl named Lisa Westerfield. Westerfield became an engineer and worked for several different companies before establishing his own business in 1995 called Spectrum Design, which made devices to help people with injuries and physical disabilities. At the time of Danielle's disappearance, Westerfield held three patents for his business. Westerfield had the reputation of someone who liked to stay out late into the night and party. His wife, Jackie, filed for divorce in June of 1996 and the couple had joint custody of their children, although they primarily lived with Lisa. By all accounts, Westerfield came from a good home. Although his father was described as strict, there were no reports of abuse toward anyone in the family. Westerfield had a pretty clean record. The only arrest on his record was a 1996 DUI that occurred shortly after he and Jackie separated. Later in the morning on Monday, the day Moe and Keene left to get some rest, there was an update coming from the detectives keeping watch at Westerfield's house. The suspect had come home shortly after 9 a.m. After hearing the news, Moe and Keene headed toward Westerfield's house right away. The pair walked up to the end of the driveway to confer with other detectives. When they began walking toward the house, Westerfield started coming toward them. His attention was focused right on Moe. She was the only female in the group of detectives. Westerfield immediately worked to build a rapport with her. She found that to be a little suspicious. As they talked, she noticed that Westerfield was sweating, sweating a lot. It was cold outside at the time, and this only added to Moe's suspicion of Westerfield. Moe and Keene relieved the other detectives. They told Westerfield they were interested in looking at all of the other houses in the neighborhood and they'd like to look through his. Keene said they would also like to look at his vehicle and his motorhome. Westerfield agreed and signed the consent forms to search everything. Then he invited them inside. Something about the way he did it gave Mo the creeps. She was not going inside that house alone. Mo followed Westerfield into the house with Keene right behind them, trying to make himself almost invisible while he looked around. When considering how perfect the lawn and bushes were, with the exception of the garden hose, the immaculately clean house was no surprise to either detective. The way Westerfield talked to Mo made her feel like he was hitting on her. He offered to make her lunch. Mo declined. Westerfield took them through the house. Mo later said, quote, I go upstairs and he shows us his bedroom. He's a show-off bragging about all of his stuff. I go into his bedroom, and when I go to the window and look out, I can see the Van Damme house, and there is an impression in the screen. 
I fit my face into the impression and it looks right down across to where Danielle would play. Keen made a note that the bed in Westerfield's master bedroom was made with sheets, but there was no comforter on top. He also made a point to note that while Westerfield was cooperative, he seemed too cooperative with them. When he and Mo would pass something without looking at it, Westerfield would immediately point it out and tell them to look at it. Mo made sure to play along with Westerfield to keep him talking, saying to him, quote, Wow, this is a really beautiful house. Mo said of the experience, quote, He's interacting with me. I'm interacting back. I don't want him to all of a sudden decide, okay, get out of my house. On the kitchen counter, there was a cutout catalog picture of a child's bed. I'm thinking, wow, this is spooky. I had gone into Danielle's room to get hair from her brush yesterday. She had a canopy bed. It's white and pink. And this picture on his counter is very similar to her bed. So why would a middle-aged bachelor have that, Mo thought. He's definitely the guy. She said, quote, Westerfield is divorced, and he says to me that I look like his ex-wife, and that may be why he's comfortable talking to me. He's a very intelligent man. He's a sick individual, but he's not stupid. He just thinks I am. As they walked into the garage, Mo saw Westerfield's Toyota 4Runner. She could tell it had been recently cleaned both inside and out, and she could smell bleach. She was convinced that he used the vehicle to take Danielle to his motorhome after abducting her. A little while later, she went back to the command post. The other officers were now in agreement with Mo that Westerfield was their guy. They asked Mo to go back and speak with him while they got warrants to search his house and vehicles. Mo went back to make small talk with Westerfield. Keen took notes but stayed as silent and as invisible as possible. And it worked. Turns out, Mo's feeling that Westerfield was coming on to her wasn't far off base. While making small talk, Westerfield asked Mo out to dinner. She thought, quote, Yeah, that's what I need a boyfriend who kills children. Mo assured Westerfield that he could trust her in hopes that maybe he'd confess. She changed her tone and said to Westerfield, quote, I want you to know that whatever happens, I'll be there and make sure everything is done right. Just show me where Danielle is if you know. Westerfield then asked if he was under arrest. Mo told him he was not. She told him they needed to find Danielle and that all the neighbors were being interviewed, including Danielle's parents. Brenda and Damon Van Dam were excluded as suspects almost immediately, however. As the conversation got a bit more intense, Westerfield gave Moen Keene his story. He said he got up on Saturday morning around 6.30 and decided he wanted to go camping in the desert. This would seem to fit with what neighbors told detectives about Westerfield, along with his nickname, Desert Dave. Said he had a motorhome that he used for camping and that he kept at a storage area in High Valley. He said he drove his Toyota 4Runner to the storage place, drove the motorhome back to his house, loaded it up with food, water, and other supplies and left around 9.50 a.m., 11 minutes after Brenda Van Dam called 911 to report Danielle missing. Westerfield said he was on his way to a motorhome park in the desert when he realized that he had forgotten to bring his wallet with him. 
He changed directions and drove to Silverstrand State Park Camp instead. He paid to stay for two nights at the park. After a while, a park ranger came by and told Westerfield that he had overpaid for the two nights and gave him some money back. Eventually, according to Westerfield, he left the park because it was too cold. At that time, he decided to drive back home to find his wallet. He said he got back home Saturday afternoon around 3.30 and saw police cars on the street. One of his neighbors told him that a child in the neighborhood was missing. Westerfield told detectives he checked his pool and looked through his home to make sure the child hadn't gotten inside somehow. When he didn't find anyone, he drove to the storage area where his SUV was parked and found his wallet inside the vehicle. Westerfield said he then put gas in his motorhome and left to camp at a sand dune area in Glamis, California, a couple of hours away. He said he got there between 10 and 10.30 p.m. on Saturday. He told Moe and Keene that he usually brings vehicles to drive on the sand dunes, but he didn't bring any with him on this trip. He said he pulled his motorhome into a spot for the night, but got stuck in the sand. He decided to go to sleep and try to dig himself out in the morning. On Sunday morning, he tried to dig the motorhome out. Luckily, a tow truck came by and pulled him out. Westerfield said he then drove to the motorhome park at Superstition Mountain about two hours east of San Diego because he wanted to see if it would be a good place for him to take his son Neil to camp in the future. Then he headed northwest about 70 miles to Borrego Springs to another motorhome park. He said he got stuck in the sand again and this time he had to dig himself out. He claimed he left Borrego Springs around 6 p.m. and drove back to the motorhome park at Silverstrand, but it was too late to enter the park for the night. Instead, he parked his motorhome across the street at Coronado Cays Park and slept in the parking lot. He said he woke up about 4 a.m. and drove back home. When he got to his home, the police were waiting for him. Keene asked Westerfield about the night of February 1st when he saw Brenda Van Dam and her friends at Dad's. Westerfield said that he saw Brenda there, and they talked for a bit. He said Brenda told him her husband thought their daughter Danielle was growing up too fast. He also mentioned that he thought Brenda had gotten a babysitter for Danielle. He said, quote, I could have sworn she said she had a babysitter. I didn't know her husband was home with the kids. Keene thought that last statement was odd since he had not asked Westerfield anything about who had been watching Danielle. He asked Westerfield how late he had been at Dad's that night. Westerfield said he stayed until about 11 or 11.30 p.m., and then he went home and went to bed. Keene asked if he had met Brenda before, and Westerfield told him about Brenda, Danielle, and Dylan coming to his house a few days before to sell Girl Scout cookies. He told the detectives that while he and Brenda talked, the two children had been running all over his house. Westerfield agreed to accompany the detectives to inspect his motorhome. They drove to the storage area in High Valley where he kept it. Westerfield unlocked the storage compartments of the motorhome to allow them to look inside. Just like he did at his house, Westerfield pointed out areas where they had not yet looked. Keene saw that the motorhome bed, just like the bed in the master bedroom at Westerfield's house, had sheets on it but no comforter. Once the search of the motorhome was complete, 
Westerfield showed the detectives his trailer, which had a dune buggy, an ATV, and other equipment. They searched through everything and then drove back to Sabre Springs. They asked Westerfield to come down to the station to be interviewed, which he did without asking for an attorney. Officer Paul Redden said one statement that stood out to everyone was when Westerfield was talking about one of the stops he made during the weekend. When describing the place at which he stopped, Westerfield said, quote, This little place that we, where we were, was just a little small turntype place. His statement made it seem as if he wasn't alone, that he had company on the trip. When asked about it, Westerfield claimed he had simply misspoken. Meanwhile, Brenda and Damon Van Dam offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to their daughter's return. A few days after Danielle's disappearance, they were featured on NBC's Today Show. Brenda begged whoever had her daughter to just bring her back to them. She pleaded, quote, Just drop her off and leave and let her come home to us. Our only concern is getting her back. We just want our baby back. People in the neighborhood tied purple and pink ribbons around trees, representing Danielle's favorite colors. Volunteer search teams were working every day, looking in different areas for Danielle. The majority of the public's response to Danielle's disappearance was supportive for the Van Dam family. There were people, however, who weren't so supportive. Some of the Van Dam's neighbors criticized them for not checking the children's rooms again after seeing the alarm light blinking both when Brenda and her friends got home and then again when Damon woke up to go to the bathroom. Most people, particularly those who knew the family, dismissed any notion that Brenda and Damon shared any fault in Danielle's disappearance. Many people who knew them were not shy about saying what wonderful people and parents both of them were. On Wednesday, February 13th, Mark Klass, the father of Polly Klass, visited the Van Dams to show his support. Polly Class was abducted from her home in Petaluma, California, during a slumber party in 1993. Mark Class said he came to meet with the family to, quote, help them deal with this a little bit. I can emotionally give them support and tell them what to expect. Mark Class had become an advocate for missing children after his daughter was murdered by Richard Allen Davis. Polly had been missing for 65 days before her body was found. Davis, who had a criminal record dating back to 1967 when he was only 12 years old, was one of the inspirations for California's Three Strikes Law, which significantly increases the sentence for someone convicted of their third felony. David was sentenced to die for the murder of Polly Class and still sits on California's death row today. The Van Dams got some help from internet service giant Qualcomm, a company with which Damon Van Dam's employer contracted. Qualcomm used one of its email software programs to send over 2 million photos of Danielle with the caption, quote, Missing, last seen, February 1st, 2002. Skincare is so important to me at this stage in my life, and I won't put just anything on my skin. I recently discovered Kino Skincare, and I am loving it. Let me tell you why. 
Aquino Skincare is thoughtful about what they put into their products using the highest quality, scientifically proven, natural ingredients. Aquino Skincare's products contain 500 milligrams of CBD, which is rich in vitamins A, D, and E. Their products are also great for anti-aging, sensitive skin, and giving your skin an antioxidant boost. Kino Skincare has certifications to back up their products. They're certified to be non-toxic, paraben-free, sulfate-free, gluten-free, and vegan. And for all of you animal lovers out there, rest assured that Kino Skincare's products are also cruelty-free. Each ingredient was thoughtfully chosen by skincare experts for a specific reason, whether it's to stimulate collagen, to moisturize, or to declog pores. I live in Southern California and I love laying out by the pool. I've been using Kino Skincare's body oil to nourish my skin after I've been in the sun. And I love their coconut mango lip balm. It is deliciously nourishing. Another reason I love Kino Skincare is that $1 from every order is donated to Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii. If you're ready to start nourishing your skin and reaping all of the amazing benefits that come along with it, I've got a special offer for you. Listeners of Murderish can get 20% off their order by going to shopkino.com and using promo code MURDERISH at checkout. That's shopkino.com and use promo code MURDERISH at checkout. The investigation into Danielle's disappearance continued in earnest. Police interviewed the owner of the motorhome storage area in High Valley to confirm Westerfield's alibi. The owner remembered that Westerfield picked up the motorhome on Saturday morning and brought it back around 7.30 a.m. on Monday. Not much seemed out of the ordinary, according to the owner. Other than Westerfield usually came with his son, Neil, but he was alone on this particular Saturday. Westerfield also left his SUV at the storage facility instead of putting the trailer on the motorhome and pulling it away with the forerunner. Officers went to the campground at Silver Strand Beach and found a few people there who remembered seeing Westerfield that day. They noticed that as soon as the motorhome pulled into the spot at the campground, someone pulled the front curtains, completely covering the windshield. They noticed that the rest of the curtains on the motorhome were already closed when Westerfield pulled into the spot. They thought it was strange that no one came outside to set anything up for camping. Instead, Westerfield stayed inside the motorhome. Although Westerfield said he left because it was too cold to stay, the people who saw him disputed that. They told detectives that the weather may have been a little cool, but overall, it was pleasant. Detectives then spoke with one of the park rangers named Olin Golden. Ranger Golden said that Westerfield had placed $54 in his registration envelope for two days, when the cost was only $24. Ranger Brian Neal went to the motorhome to return the extra 30 bucks. Like the other campers with whom police spoke, Ranger Neal also noticed that all of the curtains to the motorhome were drawn, and nothing had been set up outside. Neal knocked on the door of the motorhome. He waited for a while, as no one answered at first. He started to walk back to his vehicle when Westerfield opened the door. Instead of leaving the door open or inviting Ranger Neal inside, Westerfield stepped outside and shut the door behind him. Neal told Westerfield that he had overpaid for the registration, but Westerfield denied this. Neal gave him the $30 and went back to his vehicle. He noticed that Westerfield stayed outside the motorhome until he left. 
Neil said that a few minutes later, he saw Westerfield leave the park in his motorhome. Police spoke with a volunteer at the park, with whom Westerfield had a conversation as he was leaving. According to the volunteer, Westerfield told him that he did not overpay for his registration. Although Westerfield had previously told Detective Keene that he had left his wallet back in his SUV in High Valley, the volunteer specifically remembered Westerfield pulling out his wallet to show him that he only had $20 on him. Detectives spoke to campers at the Sand Dune Park in Glamis. The camper said that Westerfield had parked his motorhome very far off the road, so close to the sand dunes that it had gotten stuck. They said he tried to get others to tow him out on Sunday morning, but no one was able or willing. The tow truck driver who pulled Westerfield's motorhome out of the sand said he tried to return the ramps and shovel that were used to get the motorhome out of the sand dune, but Westerfield had driven away as soon as the motorhome was towed out. Police also spoke to Julie Mills, who worked at Twin Peaks Cleaners in Poway. Westerfield was well-known to the employees as he had been coming to Twin Peaks Cleaners for a long time. Mills said that on that Monday, February 4th, between 7 and 7.30 a.m., Westerfield came by the cleaners. Even though it was a cold morning, he was only wearing shorts and a t-shirt, with no shoes or socks. She had never seen him dressed so casually before. He brought in to be cleaned a sports jacket, some bedding, and two comforters. This caught detectives' attention, as the comforters were missing from the bed at his home and inside of his motorhome. Although Westerfield was usually warm and talkative, according to Mills, this particular morning, he was short on conversation and would not make eye contact. He also came by in his motorhome instead of his SUV. Westerfield had given a fairly detailed account of his whereabouts during the time surrounding Danielle's disappearance. But while speaking with Moe and Keene, he left out this trip to the dry cleaners. Mills said that later that day, around 1.40 p.m., Westerfield returned to Twin Peaks Cleaners, and this time in his SUV. She said he dropped off a sweater, pants, and a t-shirt, and he asked for same-day service. She said that again, he acted strangely, not talkative, and not friendly. On February 7th, a search warrant was issued to search Twin Peaks cleaners for any evidence Westerfield may have left behind. On that same day, Westerfield hired one of San Diego's top defense attorneys, Stephen Feldman, to represent him. Police searched Westerfield's home for the items he had dropped off at Twin Peaks cleaners. The items were recovered and sent to the forensics lab for testing. Near the end of February, the San Diego District Attorney's Office was on the same page as the police department. Their theory fell in line with what Mo Parga suspected all the way back on February 2nd. Both agencies believed they were not looking for a little girl, they were looking for a body. On February 26, 2002, the San Diego County District Attorney's Office announced that David Westerfield was being charged with the abduction and murder of Danielle Van Dam. District Attorney Paul Finkst announced that special circumstances existed in the case because Danielle's murder occurred during a kidnapping. These special circumstances would make it possible for the prosecution 
to seek the death penalty. Finkst said that since Danielle's face had been all over the news in the area since her disappearance, it would be safe to say that if she were still alive, someone would have found her by now. Finkst said, quote, There was only one reasonable conclusion, that Danielle Van Damme is no longer living. Understandably, this brought Brenda and Damon Van Damme to tears. During the investigation into Westerfield, blood was found inside of his motorhome and on one of his jackets. District Attorney Finks would later announce that DNA test results showed that the blood matched Danielle Van Damme. Even further, police found child pornography in Westerfield's home. Around 2.15 in the afternoon, on February 27th, the day after D.A. Finkst made these announcements, volunteers searching for Danielle found a body along Dehisa Road near El Cajon by the Sichuan Indian Reservation, a little over 20 miles from Sabre Springs. Police had originally searched by air and ground in both San Diego County and neighboring Imperial County with no results. They stopped when they thought their efforts could be better directed elsewhere. The Danielle Recovery Center in Poway had continued working with volunteers to search in different areas since then. Over 60 people had showed up on this particular day. They were divided into teams of 10 and sent to different areas, including Dehisa Road. The volunteers had been searching for hours, and just when they were ready to quit for the day, the discovery was made. An officer said the search team looked visibly shaken after finding the body. Initial reports were that the body had been partially burned, but police chief David Bejarano said that was not the case. He explained that bodies which are exposed to the weather can sometimes appear to be burned. One of the detectives was sure they had found Danielle, saying, quote, It is her. It's female. A young girl, the same size as Danielle. The clothing looks like hers, and the body appears to have been out there three to four weeks, which is how long she's been missing. There's nobody like that missing in the county, in that time frame, that fits that description. On the body was a plastic necklace that looked like the one featured on flyers of Danielle. Also on the body was a Mickey Mouse earring that was similar to the pair that Danielle was wearing the last time she was seen. Investigators planned to identify the body using dental records, as that would be much faster than DNA. Not long after the body was discovered, it was confirmed that the body was that of Danielle Van Damme. San Diego Police Chief David Bejareno paid a personal visit to the Van Dams to break the news. Reverend Joseph Acton from St. Timothy's Episcopal Church was called to come to the Van Damme home to comfort the grieving family. Reverend Acton told reporters, quote, they're obviously in a great deal of pain, and they're devastated by this. I really don't want to share what I told them. I prayed with them. We prayed together. It was a bittersweet time for the searchers, many of them having spent three weeks looking over most of two counties for the little girl, only to find her body. Dr. Brian Blackburn, the San Diego County Medical Examiner, came to the location a few hours after the body was discovered. He said that decomposition and animals had destroyed a lot of the tissue. Danielle's left foot and genital area were gone, 
making it impossible for him to test the body for sexual assault. Danielle was found naked, and searchers had not found any of her clothing. Her skin had become mummified, a process which was likely accelerated due to her body being left out in the elements. An autopsy was performed the next day, but because of the state of the body, Dr. Blackburn could not determine the cause of death. He was, however, able to rule out death by blunt force trauma, gunshot, or stabbing. He could not rule out suffocation. Dr. Blackburn's conclusion was that Danielle's death had been a homicide. He also said he believed she had been dead for at least 10 days before the search team discovered her body, and possibly as long as six weeks, although she had only been missing 24 to 25 days. Lab results came in for the items which were tested for DNA evidence. The results could only be described as damning to David Westerfield. Hairs with Danielle's DNA profile were found inside of his Mountain Pass Road home, inside the washer, dryer, and the bedding in the master bedroom. Orange and blue fibers from Danielle's clothing were also found in Westerfield's washer and dryer. Orange fibers were found on the pillowcases in the master bedroom and in his Toyota 4Runner. A towel in the laundry bag in the 4Runner also had the same orange fibers on it. A similar orange fiber was tangled in the necklace found on Danielle's body. The jacket that Westerfield dropped off at Twin Peaks Cleaners tested positive for blood. That blood matched Danielle's 13-marker DNA profile. Hairs from Layla, the Van Damme's dog, were found on one of the comforters Westerfield dropped off at Twin Peaks Cleaners. More hairs from Layla were found in Westerfield's laundry at his residence. Westerfield's motorhome contained a treasure trove of evidence. Danielle's blood was found on the carpet between the bathroom and the closet. Danielle's handprint, which included several individual fingerprints, was located on a cabinet above the bed in the motorhome. Hairs consistent with Danielle's DNA profile were found in the bathroom of the motorhome. Fibers, like the ones found on Danielle's body, were found in the motorhome. Fibers similar to the ones on the carpet in Danielle's bedroom were found by the bed, bathroom, and hallway of the motorhome. And hairs from Layla were found on the carpet in the hallway and bathroom rug of the motorhome. It seemed the DA had a very strong case against Westerfield. This case was most certainly going in front of a judge. Before the trial, the defense filed a motion to suppress for statements Westerfield made to police. Westerfield's defense attorney, Stephen Feldman, claimed that police had interrogated his client for over nine hours. He also said that police ignored Westerfield's request for an attorney, a shower, food, and sleep. The motion was denied. Three and a half weeks after Danielle disappeared, Westerfield appeared in front of Superior Court Judge Peter Deday. This was his first hearing to enter a plea for the charges of murder, kidnapping, and possession of child pornography. Westerfield pleaded not guilty to all charges. The following month, a preliminary hearing began in order to decide if the prosecution had enough evidence for Westerfield to be tried for Danielle's kidnapping and murder. Superior Court Judge Ronald Domnitz would hear the prosecution's evidence and rebuttal by the defense. The prosecution first called Christina Hoffs, a neighbor of the Van Dams. 
Christina lived in the house behind Westerfield for years. Christina had gotten up at 2 a.m. on Saturday, February 2nd, to feed her baby. She noticed that Westerfield had not only closed the blinds to the windows of his house, but she could also see lights on inside. When asked how often she'd noticed this in the time she had lived there, Christina said this was the only time. The prosecution discussed the plethora of physical evidence found in Westerfield's home, on his clothes, inside his SUV, and motorhome. Deputy District Attorney Jeff Dusick claimed that Westerfield wanted to have sex with Brenda and her friends on the night of February 1st, but when he was rejected, he left the bar, kidnapped Brenda's daughter, and killed her. The basis of the defense was that the police focused right away on Westerfield as a suspect and were not thorough enough because of their tunnel vision. Westerfield's lead attorney, Stephen Feldman, said the blood found on his client's clothes, inside his house, inside the SUV and motorhome, could have been left there by Danielle the Tuesday before she disappeared, when she and her brother were wandering around Westerfield's house. Feldman also questioned Brenda and Damon about their lifestyle. He pointed out that they had an open marriage and smoked marijuana, but they had not admitted this to police when they were initially questioned. He said since so many people had access to their house from their partying lifestyle, there were probably many other people who could have taken their daughter. He also tried to get Brenda to talk about the, quote, swinging lifestyle she and her husband enjoyed, but the judge sustained the prosecution's objection of relevance. Feldman also asked Brenda Van Dam about her relationship with Westerfield. He said that witnesses saw them dancing at Dad's the night of February 1st and her acting provocatively with him. Brenda denied dancing with Westerfield and claimed she only knew him from taking her daughter to his house a couple of times to sell Girl Scout cookies. After parts of three days, on Thursday, March 14th, Superior Court Judge H. Ronald Domnitz made his decision. He said, quote, The crimes in this complaint have been committed. I have reasonable cause to believe Mr. Westerfield is guilty of them. The case was going to trial. Jury selection began on May 17th, and eventually, six men and six women were chosen. Opening arguments began on June 4th. Assistant District Attorney Dusick said that Danielle's body was too decomposed to definitively determine her cause of death, but they believe she died of suffocation. Dusick told the jury, quote, Somebody dumped her body like trash. The evidence will show you who that is. Defense attorney Feldman claimed, that the evidence presented during trial would show that Westerfield was not the killer. Feldman said, quote, The science is going to come to Mr. Westerfield's rescue. It was impossible, impossible, for David Westerfield to have dumped Danielle Van Dam in that location. Feldman also told the jury that Brenda and Damon had withheld from police that they smoked marijuana the night of their daughter's abduction. He also told them that the parents withheld even more embarrassing activities from the police, referring to their lifestyle. Details, he claimed, they didn't want anyone to know about. The prosecution's first two witnesses were members of the search team that found Danielle's body. They were called to describe the experience. A deputy at the scene that day then testified that Danielle's body had been damaged by animals and told the jury that her genitals and one of her feet were gone. On day two of the trial, Dr. Norman Sperber, a forensic dentist, was the first witness called. 
Dr. Sperber testified that he was able to identify the body as Danielle's through dental records. He said that she was missing four of her front teeth and said that loose teeth were not uncommon in cases of suffocation. Damon Van Dam was called to the stand next. He testified about the night Danielle disappeared. He went over the layout of Danielle's room. He admitted that he had not disclosed the fact that he and Brenda had smoked marijuana the night their daughter was abducted because they didn't think it had any relevance. On cross-examination, defense attorney Feldman put the Van Dam's lifestyle at center stage. He had alluded to an embarrassing activity the Van Dams withheld from police during the preliminary trial. Feldman accused the couple of leading a sexually promiscuous lifestyle where they engaged in, quote, spouse swapping. Damon admitted that they did engage in sex with other couples and that they had not initially told the police. Feldman got Damon to admit that the very night Danielle was taken, one of their female friends, Barbara Easton, who came home with Brenda, had crawled into bed with Damon. Feldman continued, saying that one of the friends who came by that night could have taken their daughter and that withholding information from the police may have held up the investigation and prevented other suspects from being identified. Damon also admitted in the months before Danielle was abducted, he had engaged in sex with Barbara Easton, as well as Denise Kamal, the two women who were with Brenda at Dad's on February 1st. Feldman got Damon to admit that he had engaged in sex with a friend of his wife's at least one time in Brenda's presence. Feldman attempted to ask Damon about some, quote, risque Halloween parties the couple liked to have, but Superior Court Judge William Mudd sustained Dusick's objection and told Damon he didn't have to answer. The local TV stations were completely focused on Damon's cross-examination that evening, as local attorneys were used as experts to discuss the trial. On the local ABC affiliate, defense attorney Jan Ronis told viewers that sympathy the jury felt for Damon was severely damaged by Feldman on cross-exam. On CBS, jury consultant Tony Blake discussed Feldman's strategy saying, quote, There was some eye-rolling on the part of the jurors that shows they're not sure of Damon Van Dam's credibility. Former prosecutor Dan Williams said on NBC that he thought Feldman's strategy was only for show. Williams said, quote, I don't understand how, other than trashing the witness, the sex stuff works. The next day, the prosecution called Brenda Van Dam, who, through tears, went over the night of Danielle's disappearance. She told Dusick that she only gave Westerfield her phone number the Tuesday before because he had given his phone number to her and she didn't want to appear rude. She discussed the morning that Danielle disappeared, and the tape of her 911 call was played for the jury. On cross-exam, Feldman tried to get Brenda to admit that she and her husband had discussed what to tell police and what not to tell police before they were interviewed. Brenda denied this. He asked her questions about the open marriage she and Damon had and got her to tell the jury that both of them had engaged in sex with other friends. Feldman questioned Brenda about the four friends she brought home from Dad's that evening and about the fact that she didn't bother to check on the children before she went to bed. Feldman emphasized that either or both of the men that came home with Brenda, Rich Brady and Keith Stone, could have abducted Danielle that night. Feldman asked Brenda if she had engaged in sex with Barbara and Denise and their husbands, and she replied that she had. 
She also admitted that she and Damon had engaged in sex with Denise and her husband at a Halloween party in 2000. Feldman brought up the night at Dad's and the witnesses who said Brenda and Westerfield were dancing in a provocative manner. Brenda denied ever dancing with Westerfield, saying that she only danced with Barbara and Denise. Feldman said the three women were dancing in such a manner that men all over the bar were moving closer and closer to them. Feldman implied that any of these men could have followed her home and taken Danielle. Something odd occurred at the courthouse while Westerfield's trial wasn't in session. A local woman, who was at the courthouse for a different matter, happened to see Westerfield in the hallway. The woman began screaming obscenities at him. Sheriff's deputies quickly got to her and escorted her out of the building, telling her that if she returned, she would be arrested. It seemed the two had a history, a negative one. San Diego County Medical Examiner Dr. Brian Blackburn was the final witness of the day. He testified that the cause of death could not be firmly established due to the decomposition of the body, but that death by gunshot, blunt force trauma, stabbing, and strangulation had been ruled out. He said it was possible that the cause of death was suffocation. The next day, Dr. Blackburn concluded his testimony. He said the exact time of Danielle's death was also impossible to determine because of the body's decomposition. He said he believed, based on the state of decomposition, that she had been dead between 10 days and 6 weeks. Sean Brown, the manager at Dad's, was called to the stand next. He said Westerfield had been there several times before. Brown described Westerfield as a, quote, people watcher. He remembered both Brenda Van Dam and Westerfield being there on January 25th and February 1st, but he didn't know when they arrived or when they left, or how much either of them had to drink. He did say that on January 25th, Westerfield was unhappy with the price of the drinks he bought that night. He also said that on February 1st, he didn't think that Brenda and her friends appeared drunk or to be partying hard that night. The trial resumed on Monday, June 10th. The trial wasn't in session on Fridays due to work schedule conflicts of some of the jurors. The jury was not sequestered, and this would be a significant issue for the defense later on. Brenda's friend, Denise Kamal, was called to the stand. She said Westerfield bought them a round of drinks at Dad's on February 1st, and she described his behavior as, quote, weird and creepy. She said he was just leaning against the bar, watching them play pool. She also spoke about the five friends going back to the Van Dam's house and finding the garage door open. On cross-exam, Denise told Feldman that she had had several drinks the night of February 1st. She also answered questions about her sexual activities with the Van Dams. Rich Brady and Keith Stone were then called to the stand. Brady, a high school teacher and coach, said he was the one who had the marijuana they all smoked. He also said that Brenda closed the doors to the children's bedrooms that night. Stone said that Brenda had propositioned him that night, but he turned her down because she was married and because he was interested in Barbara Easton. Gary Harvey, a friend of Westerfield's who was at Dad's on February 1st, testified that Westerfield was at Dad's until about 11.30 or 12.30 a.m. that night. On day five, lead investigator Detective Johnny Keene was called first. He said that at the first interview he had with Westerfield, he noticed Westerfield was nervous and sweating, 
even though it was only about 50 degrees at the time. He also said that Westerfield was cooperative, but that he was too cooperative. Keene described how Westerfield would point out places during the search that they had not checked, which was very suspicious to him. Keene said, quote, Typically, when we search people's houses, they don't point out areas they think we should look at. He said that he could smell bleach in the motorhome when they searched it, and that he saw a bunch of small scratches on Westerfield's arms. Westerfield told him that he scratched himself trying to get his motorhome out of the sand. Detective Mo Parga was next on the stand. She said she was looking at some bedding on the top of Westerfield's dryer when he interrupted her and tried to get her to come into the garage to show her his Toyota 4Runner. On day six of the trial, San Diego Police Detective Paul Redden testified about Westerfield's use of the word we during his interrogation as he described his activities the weekend Danielle was abducted. A tape of this conversation was played for the jury. Westerfield said on tape that he had never been inside the Van Damme home and that he would not have recognized Danielle if he saw her. Christina Hoffs, the neighbor who testified at the preliminary trial, was called again to testify about seeing Westerfield's lights on and his blinds closed the night of Danielle's abduction. San Diego police detective Howard Labor was called to corroborate Hoff's story as he spoke to her while canvassing the neighborhood during the search for Danielle. On day seven, Angela Elkis, another neighbor of the Van Dams, was called to the stand. The prosecution was trying to show that a stranger could come into the home without Layla, the family dog, barking to scare them off. Angela confirmed that she came to the Van Dam home for the first time on Sunday, February 3rd, to bring some food to the family, and that Layla never barked at her. Damon Van Dam had previously testified that Layla didn't bark at people who came into the house. Donald Raymond was called next. He testified that he saw Westerfield pull his wallet out at Silver Strand State Beach on Saturday, which contradicted Westerfield's statement saying he left his wallet back in Poway. Daniel Conklin, the tow truck driver who pulled Westerfield's motorhome out of the sand in Glamis, said on the stand that the motorhome was parked very far off the road, where no motorhome should have been. He also said he thought he heard Westerfield talking to someone when he approached. Other witnesses were called to testify that they saw Westerfield's motorhome parked with all of the blinds drawn. However, no one saw anyone other than Westerfield. San Diego police criminalist Sean Soriano told the jury that Westerfield's jacket, the one he dropped off at the cleaners, had three stains on it that appeared to be blood. Orchid Cellmark DNA Lab director Lewis Madden told the jury that one of the stains from Westerfield's jacket matched DNA from Danielle. Forensic biologist Annette Peer said that one bloodstain matched all 13 markers of Danielle's DNA profile, which would match 1 in 670 quadrillion of the population. However, on cross-exam, Feldman got police criminalist Sean Soriano to admit that he couldn't say for certain how the bloodstains came to be on Westerfield's jacket. Although the defense was able to make its point regarding possible cross-contamination, the blood-matching Danielle wasn't the only strong DNA evidence the prosecution had. Michael Holland, the lab director of Bode Technology Group, testified that hair found in the sink of Westerfield's motorhome and blood on the carpet of the motorhome 
matched all 13 markers of Danielle's DNA profile. When asked what the chances were of either being a false match, he said the chances were virtually non-existent, about 1 in 660 quadrillion. A San Diego latent fingerprint examiner testified about fingerprints found in Westerfield's motorhome on a cabinet above the bed. He compared them to a set of fingerprints from Danielle and was able to make a match. He said that by the way the print was left, Danielle had been in motion when she left the print. During the investigation, Westerfield's computer was seized. This would prove to be a valuable piece of evidence for the prosecution. San Diego computer forensics examiner James Watkins testified that he found between 8 and 10,000 nude images on Westerfield's computer. Although most of the photos were of adult females, about 85 of them appeared to be of children. Watkins' testimony continued on to the next day, as he was asked to describe each of the images in question. He said there were 39 movies that depicted females, who appeared to be minors, engaged in acts which may have constituted child pornography. Watkins also said Westerfield's computer had two anime films with storyboard-type drawings of young girls being abducted, tied up, and raped. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. I'm Matt Johnson, boots on the ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the podcast that gives you a unique reporter's point of view from the yellow crime scene tape to the gavel in the courtroom. We paint a picture on True Crime Deadline with murder, mystery, and missing persons cases. My contacts grant you access to those case files with disturbing new details and exclusive interviews. Details might have you thinking, no, that didn't happen. They didn't do that, did they? And then there's the Oprah-inspired, Where Are They Now? Binge these 30-minute Crime Bite episodes where you get your podcasts. Buckle up, investigators. You're on deadline. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. Until next time. Jim Frazee, a canine handler with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, described one of his dog's reactions to a storage compartment in Westerfield's motorhome. The dog was trained to alert the handler to the scent of a cadaver. The dog, named Cello, showed interest in the storage compartment as well as a shovel and a lawn chair inside the motorhome. According to Frazee, this type of reaction from the dog indicated that a dead body had been inside the motorhome. The prosecution rested its case on July 2nd. The defense faced an uphill battle refuting the seemingly overwhelming amount of evidence stacked against Westerfield. Mark Rohr, a neighbor, said that he found Westerfield's forerunner unlocked one night. Feldman used this to suggest that Danielle may have gotten into Westerfield's SUV to play around, and this could be how her DNA was left inside the vehicle. Feldman reminded the jury that fingerprints may show that a person was in a certain place, but cannot give any clue as to when they were there, or in what circumstances. He also disputed the scientific usefulness of carpet fiber evidence 
and told the jury how easily fibers and hair can be transferred from one place to another. Feldman brought in Marcus Lawson, a computer forensics expert, who testified about the pornographic images police found on Westerfield's computer. Lawson claimed the images belonged to Westerfield's son, Neil. Feldman showed the jury pictures of police and crime scene techs inside and outside of Westerfield's house during the investigation. Many of them were wearing identical shirts, orange-colored shirts, the same color as many of the fibers that linked Westerfield to the crime, according to the prosecution. The most contentious issue between the prosecution and the defense was when Danielle Van Damme died. The prosecution claimed that she died during the first couple of days after her abduction, while Westerfield claimed he was by himself on a camping trip. The defense claimed that Danielle's death occurred later, after Westerfield had already become a suspect, and after he was under police surveillance. If the defense could prove that their time-of-death theory was correct, they could make a very strong case that their client could not have killed Danielle, as he could not have done so while he was being so closely watched. The date of February 4th became an important factor in trial, as the police began surveillance of Westerfield that day. Three experts testified for the prosecution regarding when they believed Danielle died. One expert, the medical examiner, testified that Danielle died between February 1st and February 18th. Forensic anthropologist Dr. William Rodriguez III first estimated Danielle died between January 17th and January 31st. However, he extended his timeline to as late as February 6th after being told Danielle was not abducted until late on February 1st or early February 2nd. Forensic entomologist Dr. Madison Lee Goff used insect infestation to estimate Danielle's death to have occurred between February 9th and February 14th, but also said that other factors may have delayed the arrival of insects, thereby delaying the infestation. Dr. Goff said, for example, covering the body with a blanket would have kept flies away. That said, nothing was found covering Danielle's body. When the defense's turn came, Feldman was ready. He said that based on entomological evidence, Danielle's body could not have been placed by Westerfield at the site where she was discovered. He said it wasn't possible because his client was already under constant police surveillance and did not go anywhere near the area. He called experts to provide evidence that Danielle's death took place after February 4th, when police began to maintain surveillance of Westerfield. If Feldman could convince even one juror that Danielle had been murdered after police began watching his client, that would be all he would need to allow his client to walk out of the courtroom a free man. Three experts testified for the defense regarding when they thought Danielle died. Forensic entomologist Dr. David Faulkner collected insects at Danielle's autopsy and testified that based on the insect material, temperature, and weather conditions, insect activity on Danielle's body would have occurred 10 to 12 days before she was found. This meant she would have been placed at the site on Dehesa Road sometime between February 16th and February 18th, well after the time police began to surveil Westerfield. Forensic entomologist Dr. Neil Haskell 
testified that insect infestation, which can occur as soon as 20 minutes after death, happened between February 14th and February 21st. Haskell didn't collect insect samples himself, but reviewed the ones Faulkner collected. Forensic entomologist Dr. Robert Hall testified that insect infestation initially occurred between February 12th and February 13th. He did admit that the insect infestation was atypical due to the small number of maggots found in Danielle's skull. World-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wecht was consulted by the defense, but was not called as a witness. Dr. Wecht's findings were the same as Dr. Blackburn, the medical examiner, who believed Danielle was murdered between February 1st and February 18th. The prosecution had called forensic anthropologist Dr. William Rodriguez as a rebuttal witness. Dr. Rodriguez was an expert in working with human skeletons. He was particularly known to be used in cases where bodies were in such a state of decomposition that identification and cause of death were difficult to determine. On the stand, Dr. Rodriguez said that Danielle's body had become mummified to a high degree which would be expected with a small child. He said that mummification slows decomposition, and due to mummification, insects cannot penetrate the body, or the ones who have penetrated the body, penetrated the body before it became mummified, cannot get out and will die from starvation. He said that due to these variables, it's very difficult to determine accurately how long a person has been dead, and that different methods not just entomology, must be used. Based on his examination of different methods, he believed Danielle died earlier than February 6th. In what had to be an extremely awkward moment in the courtroom, Assistant District Attorney Dusick called Westerfield's son, Neil, to the witness stand. He denied downloading any child pornography, saying that any pornographic images he downloaded were of adult women. None of the porn, according to Neil, were of children or women who looked like children. Dusick asked Neil if defense attorney Feldman had tried to pressure him into admitting that he had downloaded the child porn to take that charge off of his father. Neil said that Feldman had done so. Interestingly, Feldman chose not to cross-examine Neil. Closing arguments began on August 12th, more than two months after the trial began. Dusick told the jury that Westerfield may have been in Danielle's room for an hour or more before he decided to take her from the house. Dusick said, quote, he gets penned in and hides somewhere, probably in her bedroom. The bottom line is, though, he did it. In closing, lead defense attorney Stephen Feldman held up a poster board that he stated gave all of the physical evidence showing that Westerfield had ever been inside the Van Damme home. The poster board was completely blank. Feldman said, quote, This is a case which entirely relies on circumstantial evidence. There is no direct evidence in this case. He asked them not to make up their minds until they had started deliberations. Feldman further stated that Brenda and Damon's swinging lifestyle attracted whoever killed Danielle to the house, and whoever the killer is, it was not his client. He said, quote, we don't blame the Van Dams. We don't blame the parents. We don't think they recognize the dangers of the life they led. If you engage in sex and drug behavior, what happens to your children when you don't check on them? Feldman went on, saying, quote, 
Who are you inviting into your home? When you invite the world in, you don't know what you bring. Dusick made sure to remind the jury that although there was no evidence showing that Westerfield had been inside the Van Dam's home, there was overwhelming physical evidence of Danielle being inside Westerfield's home, SUV, and motorhome. He also said that even though there was no physical evidence showing that Westerfield was inside the Van Dam home, it was certainly possible for an intruder to enter a home, take what they came to take, and go, all without leaving any evidence. Dusick said that Westerfield's alibi was poor, leaving gaps at certain times. He said that Westerfield had seen Brenda and her friends dancing provocatively at Dad's and decided to act his sexual fantasies out by abducting her only daughter. He snuck through the unlocked garage door, thinking that only Danielle and a babysitter would be home, and was most likely caught off guard finding Damon and the boys there too. Then Brenda and her friends arrived. Instead of leaving, Dusick said Westerfield decided to hide, probably inside Danielle's bedroom, waiting for them to leave. Once everyone had gone to bed, Westerfield took Danielle out through the sliding glass door that Damon found open a short while later. He took the girl to his house, then to his motorhome, and eventually sexually assaulted and killed her that weekend. Dusick said that although police had focused in on Westerfield quickly, it was after others had been identified and eliminated as suspects. The jury then began to deliberate Westerfield's fate. On the morning of Wednesday, August 21st, after 10 days of deliberations, the jury informed Superior Court Justice William D. Mudd they had reached a decision. All parties were called into the courthouse. When Judge Mudd called the court to order, the verdict was read aloud. David Allen Westerfield was found guilty of the kidnapping and the first-degree murder of Danielle Van Damme. He was also found guilty of possession of child pornography. The jury also decided that special circumstances existed, which would make Westerfield eligible for the death penalty. The penalty phase was scheduled to begin on August 28th to decide whether Westerfield would die by lethal injection or receive a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Back in Sabri Springs, TV news trucks filled the streets looking for residents to interview. One neighbor, April Kate, who had moved to Sabri Springs less than a year earlier, was relieved that they could begin to move on. She said, quote, We're just glad it's over. It's kind of a good day for the neighborhood. Most people realized that the place where they lived and raised their children was gone forever, changed by a monster hidden right in their very midst. Karen Sagasse, who had two sons, said some of her friends had daughters who could not sleep at night after Danielle's abduction. She said, quote, They're putting the monitor by the bedside and waking up all through the night. Another neighbor, Gian Cruza, they no longer had get-togethers like they used to, saying, quote, Our lives are changed forever. I think this will cheat my daughter out of an experience of childhood. It's stolen something from her. On August 28th, the prosecutor called new witnesses during the penalty phase of trial. Because of the nature of their testimony, Judge Mudd ordered that the two witnesses' names 
not be fully disclosed. Dusick first called David Westerfield's 19-year-old niece identified as Jenny Lynn. Jenny Lynn said that Westerfield had acted inappropriately toward her when she was seven years old, the same age as Danielle Van Damme was when she was murdered. Jenny Lynn said she had not talked about this incident for over 12 years. At the time of the alleged incident, Westerfield was married to the sister of Jenny Lynn's father. Jenny Lynn and her family were staying at Westerfield's home for a family gathering, and Jenny Lynn and her younger sister were asleep with Westerfield's daughter, Lisa, in Lisa's bedroom. Jenny Lynn said she woke up when she realized that Westerfield was inside her room and that his fingers were inside her mouth. She said he was, quote, kind of playing with my teeth. Jenny pretended to be asleep. She said he took his fingers out of her mouth and then walked over to her sister, then came back and put his fingers back inside her mouth again. This time, Jenny Lynn said she, quote, bit him very hard for as long as I could, which finally got him to stop. She said he then walked over to Lisa's bed, adjusted his shorts, and left the bedroom. Jenny Lynn said she wasn't sure what to do, so she didn't scream or call out. She said, quote, I was too freaked out about it. I didn't understand what was going on. She said she told her mother what happened. Her mother, identified as Jeanne, was called to testify about the incident. Jeanne said her daughter told her what happened about a week later, and she angrily asked Westerfield about it. She told the court that Westerfield said Jenny Lynn was lying. Jeanne said Westerfield said he thought she was having problems sleeping. Jeanne said, quote, He said she had been fussing in her sleep and he was comforting her. It seemed like a reasonable explanation, and I didn't question it further. Dusick told the court that he was having Jenny Lynn and her mother testify to show that Westerfield already had a tendency toward making advances on young girls before he kidnapped Danielle. The prosecution also played a recording of Westerfield's interrogation with Officer Paul Redden from February. When Redden asked Westerfield whether he had any prior incidents in his life that might suggest he was the type of person who could abduct a child, Westerfield talked about the incident with his niece. He said it was a complete misunderstanding. He said Jenny Lynn's sister was kicking in her sleep and he was trying to separate the two girls, but their mother misunderstood what happened and accused him of molesting her. The jury was also shown pictures of Jenny Lynn around the time of the incident. She bore an eerie resemblance to Danielle Van Damme. Defense attorney Stephen Feldman had previously attempted to suppress Jenny Lynn and Jeanne's testimony, but Judge Mudd overruled the objection. Brenda and Damon Van Dam were called to the stand in the penalty phase to portray how the loss of Danielle had affected their entire family. Brenda talked about how her daughter's room had been preserved so they could remember her. Brenda said, quote, I go in there to try to feel her, to try to smell her. The family kept Danielle's ashes in an urn on the mantle so she could always be with them. When Dusick asked Brenda to describe her loss, she answered, quote, I don't know where to begin. Damon Van Dam said that Dylan and Derek lived in fear after their sister's death. They couldn't sleep alone for months after she was taken from her own room in her own home in the middle of the night. He recalled the two times when he took Danielle to a father-daughter dance at school and how much fun they had. A third dance they were supposed to attend, 
was scheduled shortly after she disappeared. He said that when he would tuck her into bed at night, she would hug him with all of her strength, and he would pretend to go limp in her arms. The prosecution ended with heart-wrenching testimony from Danielle's teachers talking about the effects the loss has had on not only them, but on her classmates. Ruby Puntenny, one of Danielle's teachers, said that the loss of Danielle was traumatic to the other students in her class. She said that once her body was discovered, her classmates boxed up all of Danielle's possessions to give back to her family. They also changed the seating arrangement and moved Danielle's desk, not wanting anyone else to sit there. Dusik told the jury, quote, We will ask for a verdict based upon what he deserves, not based upon what he wants. Defense attorney Feldman had a huge task ahead and didn't have a lot to work with. He told the jury, quote, We don't question your verdict, but we do continue to have doubts that linger. We don't try to excuse the crime. There is no excuse. But David Allen Westerfield is not the worst of the worst. Feldman also told the jury that the death penalty was not appropriate if they had even the slightest doubt of Westerfield's guilt. A former supervisor of Westerfield's testified, telling the jury that Westerfield was vital in developing important medical devices which have helped so many people. Westerfield's sister, Tanya, testified for her brother. She was questioned about their childhood. She said that he worked to put himself through college, although he didn't graduate. She said that family values were very important to him and that he had been very protective of her. Both of Westerfield's children testified during the penalty phase. They both said they still love their father and asked the jury to spare his life. Under Cross, Dusick tried to ask Neil Westerfield about his father blaming the downloading of child pornography on him, but Judge Mudd sustained Feldman's objection and would not allow it. By this time, both of Westerfield's children had legally changed their last names from Westerfield to West. Westerfield's ex-girlfriend, identified as Susan L., testified that she and her daughter, Christina, along with Christina's one-year-old son, had lived with Westerfield for a year. Susan testified that Westerfield had helped her daughter to get out of an abusive relationship. He also threw a birthday party for Christina's son because Christina didn't have money to do it herself. Late morning on Monday, September 16th, after 40 hours of deliberations, Judge Mudd was told the jury had not reached a verdict over the sentencing and they wanted guidance from him. The judge set a hearing to discuss the case with them. The jury went to lunch. Soon after the jury returned from lunch at 1.25 p.m., the foreperson asked the judge for a little more time to deliberate. Ten minutes later, they had a verdict. Defense attorney Feldman requested a mistrial, claiming that the sudden verdict showed that the jury had been discussing the case outside the courtroom. Judge Mudd overruled him, saying, quote, The only thing I can say is your argument is basically rank speculation. Once the court was in session and Judge Mudd began instructing the jury on final matters, juror number one asked to be excused to go to the bathroom because she felt like she was going to be sick. The trial had taken such a toll on the jury. Once court was back in session, the proceedings began again. The jury recommended death for Westerfield. A formal sentencing hearing would be set for Judge Mudd to officially pronounce the sentence. The judge had the discretion to go along with the jury's recommendation of death 
or reduce the sentence to life without the possibility of parole. Outside the courthouse, the jury was tight-lipped about their sudden change of heart after saying they couldn't reach a verdict. The foreperson said, quote, I think the verdict speaks for itself. We needed more time to discuss it. When pressured to answer who and how many holdouts there were before the verdict was made, the jury would not discuss it. The foreperson would only say, quote, It was very heavy duty for all of us. We'll just leave that in the jury room. On January 2nd, Brenda and Damon Van Dam filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Westerfield in order to prevent him from making any profit from selling his story or writing a book about Danielle's case. Eventually, they would settle with several insurance companies who insured Westerfield's home, SUV, for an amount of $416,000. The settlement also prevented Westerfield from ever making any profit from the crime. On Friday, January 3rd of 2003, Judge Mudd held a hearing for formal sentencing. Before making his ruling, he called upon Brenda and Damon Van Dam for anything they wanted to say. Brenda said of Westerfield, quote, Our precious Danielle was taken by a monster, thinking only of self-gratification to pursue his own sick fantasies. She turned to Westerfield and said, What were you thinking as you killed her? Did she not touch your heart one bit? If not, you are heartless. You are an empty shell. It disgusts me that your sick fantasies and pitiful needs made you think that you needed Danielle more than her family. Our precious Danielle was taken by a monster thinking only of self-gratification and not thinking about the sweet little child he was harming and about how his crime would affect her family, the community, and the world. Westerfield would not even look as she continued saying, quote, you sat by smugly as thousands of people frantically searched for Danielle and her family. You do not deserve any leniency, any mercy, because you refused to give it to Danielle. She reminded Westerfield that she and Damon were not the only ones with a daughter. Brenda said, you have a daughter of your own. You will miss out on all of the good times in her life. You have victimized your own children because you wanted mine. Although your children may try to move and change their names, they will always live with the fact that their father is a cold-blooded killer. Damon told the court that he would miss seeing his daughter grow up. He said, I'll never get to see her be a doctor or a teacher. I'll miss seeing her going to the prom. I'll miss her graduation. I'll miss seeing her go off to college and seeing what she will become. We know we have a whole lot of hearts that will never heal. He tried to let the court know the pain he and the remaining members of his family were feeling. He said, quote, All I'll have are the memories of her, some old pictures and videos and dreams of her, which I hope are always as vivid as they are now. And having to know how brutal the last hours of her life were, my heart and my wife's heart have been broken, and my other two children have been deeply hurt. When Judge Mudd asked Westerfield if he would like to make a comment, he said only, quote, no, sir, thank you. Judge Mudd called the kidnapping and murder of Danielle, quote, extremely cruel and vicious. Brenda Van Dam started to cry when the judge mentioned Danielle's body being found, missing some of her front teeth. Judge Mudd went with the jury's recommendation and sentenced Westerfield to death. In the state of California, death sentences are automatically appealed to the California Supreme Court. 
In 2011, Westerfield's defense team, led by appellate attorney Mark Greenberg, sent a 490-page legal brief to the court with 28 reasons why Westerfield deserved a new trial. Their efforts were in vain. Westerfield's appeals were denied. Today, David Allen Westerfield is one of 737 inmates on death row in San Quentin State Prison in California. A month after his first appeal was denied by the California Supreme Court, Governor Gavin Newsom ordered a moratorium on death sentences in California, putting a temporary ban on death sentences. This decision, just as in other states, was met with mixed reactions. Brenda Van Dam, for one, was not happy. Westerfield has a couple of avenues to take if he wishes. He can take his appeal to the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court typically receives around 7,000 cases to review each year and only accepts about 150. His other avenue would be to find new evidence that will raise issues for post-conviction relief. It's likely, however, that Westerfield is facing a brown box sentence and will never leave prison alive. Westerfield's mother, Laura Nan Westerfield, lives in a retirement home in Claremont in Southern California. She's 86 years old. Her youngest child, Earl Edson Westerfield, died of AIDS in 1990 when he was just 36 years old. Her middle child, Tanya, her only daughter, lives in San Diego. And her oldest, David, is on death row for kidnapping and murdering a seven-year-old girl. On one hand, Laura can't ignore the overwhelming amount of evidence against her son, but she also thinks about the boy she raised and how he could not possibly do something so awful. Laura said of her feelings, quote, I am predisposed to the fact that he did not do this. David wouldn't do something like that. What happened? Can somebody tell me what happened? How could he have possibly done it? I did the best I could. He's a great person. I have no idea how the hell it happened. Something happened to him. Laura is adamant that there was no abuse in the household in which David grew up. She said her children's relationships with her and their father were normal. David Westerfield's father, David Horatio Westerfield, was a state representative in Maine. His parents divorced when Westerfield was 26 years old. Westerfield's father died from cancer in 1993. San Diego Detective Mo Parga was one of the most colorful and important officers involved in this case. A 17-year veteran at the time of Danielle's abduction, it was her keen observations that led police to focus in on Westerfield, albeit too late to save his victim. Mo retired from the force in May of 2018 after serving almost 33 years. Her husband is a retired San Diego Police Department narcotics sergeant. They now live in El Cajon on a ranch with their horses. Mo, who headed up the San Diego Mountain Unit at one time, is working on setting up a volunteer mounted patrol in El Cajon. Since Danielle Van Damme was murdered, a number of bills have been presented in the California State Legislature. The bills, called Project Kidsafe, were aimed at sex crimes and sex trafficking. Some of the bills were passed and others were not. One of the bills that was passed into law allowed statewide task forces to be created to monitor sex offenders and work on sex crimes. Danielle was abducted the same year as Elizabeth Smart in Utah 
and Samantha Runyon in California. California Senator Dennis Hollingsworth, one of the creators of Project KidSafe, along with Assemblyman Jack LeSueur, believe that laws have been tightened after terrible crimes like Danielle's. One new law came directly from Danielle's case. California courts now treat child pornography like drugs or any other contraband in being able to limit its reproduction or distribution. Previously, defense attorneys were given copies of of child pornography evidence in order to prepare their cases. Now, they must view the pornography in the police evidence room, supervised by a law enforcement officer. The purpose of this law is to prevent further victimization of the children in the images. On July 9, 2004, the Interstate 8 overpass of 2nd Street in El Cajon was officially renamed the Danielle Van Damme Memorial Overpass. The overpass was very close to the location where Danielle's body was found. Creekside Elementary School, where Danielle attended, has dedicated part of the open public area to their former classmate. At Petco Park, home of the San Diego Padres, there are seven memorial bricks in the frozen rope section, which are inscribed for Danielle. One of them says, quote, We miss you, Danielle. Another says, quote, Forever seven. Another one says, quote, Remember me always. The Van Dams continued to live in California after their daughter's death. Brenda and Damon became advocates to increase guidelines and early warning signs for sexual predators. They formed the Danielle Legacy Foundation to promote changes to help make children safer. The Danielle Van Damme abduction and murder case gripped the community and changed people's behavior. Children are kidnapped every day, but the overwhelming majority are taken by someone they know and not from their own homes in the middle of the night. This is one of those very rare cases that reminds us monsters do exist and sometimes they exist just yards away from our own homes. Hug your children, everyone. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways you can support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which helps other people discover Murderish easier. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Kino Skincare. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast and other cool stuff. That's patreon.com murderish. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other stuff available. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. 
Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sharif. I am five years old. I am in kindergarten at Stevenson School in Des Plaines. And I am doing a podcast on a story I wrote. The name is The Stealer of the Diamond. Listen to this episode of Azka's Mystery Podcast, written and created by five-year-old Azka. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.